So our second reading is Luke 19, page 1058. Luke 19, beginning at verse 11. As they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minors and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants, to whom he had given the money, to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you've been faithful in very little you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you ought to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you, not, did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina away from him, and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he's ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them. Bring them here and slaughter them before me. Well, out in uh, Sweden this past summer, we had um, a job that needed doing. So we basically had this big practical job that needed doing. There was a huge pile of planks, old planks, uh, that had lots of nails in them, and uh, we needed the, the nails taking out. And it was a pretty big job, and when I put this to the family, understandably, there wasn't a huge amount of enthusiasm amongst the children to do this. There wasn't exactly a forest of hands going up uh, to volunteer, until, until we offered a £10 reward. And then, <laughs> Reuben's little eyes lit up, and he headed off with a hammer and a crowbar to set about the task, and did a very good job. Um, and he finished it, and he even got a, ten, uh, you got a £5 bonus uh, for personal injuries sustained uh, while doing it. Now, perhaps we're bad parents, uh, but it seems to me there's nothing wrong with sometimes using rewards as an incentive for doing things. Uh, we don't do it with everything that we ask our kids to do. Um, I hasten to add, sometimes it is just a question of, uh, do this please because I'm asking you to do it and I'm your parent, so they don't get paid for doing the washing up or, you know... But rewards do sometimes feature, as with the, uh, the plank job. And I guess that, that applies to you at work as well, for example. Uh, reward is used as an incentive. Work hard and you will get a pay rise or promotion or maybe you will just keep your job. Maybe that's the reward. Competitive sport. 
I mean, reward is a big, big, big motivator. So you give it everything you've got because you want to win the title, the trophy, the Olympic medal. So you're not just doing it for the fun of taking part. seems to me um, it's part of how we function as human beings that the prospect of a reward is a powerful incentive. Now the question is, how about with God? So does God use reward as an incentive? don't know what you'd say at the moment. If you were to jot down the answer to that question on your bit of paper there. Um, if we know the gospel, I guess our instinctive response might be to say, no, uh, salvation 101 is that salvation is a free gift. It's not a reward. It's not payment for what we have done. And you could quote uh, Romans 6.23, for example, which says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So eternal life is not something that we earn, uh, like wages. It is a free gift through Jesus that we just need to receive by faith. But what then? So as a Christian saved by grace, having received this free gift of eternal life, what then? What is the motivation for working hard in living out your faith? Imagine the, uh, the Christian community as on a cruise ship. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been on a cruise ship. I haven't. Anyone ever been on one of those holidays on a cruise ship? No. Maybe it's... Oh, there we go. I was going to say, maybe it's the sort of thing for retirement, but obviously not. <laughs> And I'll take that back. It's obviously a fun thing to do. Uh, Good, good. Well, tell us all about that afterwards. We'll we'll carry on. Um, Imagine the Christian community on a a cruise ship. Some people who profess Christian faith, they're just sort of lounging about on the Sunday. They're doing absolutely nothing at all. They're just, you know, sort of topping up their tan, hardly lifting a finger, as it were. Others, you might say, sort of the second category of Christian, are up and about, and they're at least doing something. They're trying to serve other people on the cruise ship. And then you've got others still who are sort of sweating it out in the engine room. They're slaving away. They're making big, big sacrifices for the Lord. They're working hard in serving him in prayer, uh, in giving money, in hospitality, in pursuing godliness and so on. The question is this. Does God make no distinction between them? So when the cruise ship, as it were, gets to its heavenly destination, to that port, will there be no difference in how they are treated by God. And if there's no difference, is that fair? And if there's no difference, what what actually is the incentive to make any effort or any sacrifice as a Christian? Well, this parable that Jesus tells here in Luke 19, it reveals that all are not going to be treated the same way when that cruise ship gets to its heavenly port. There will be reward according to how we have served the Lord. And once we understand this rightly, it's actually a powerful incentive to get off the sun lounger and to work hard for the Lord as faithful servants. Now, just a bit of context. Um, This passage is the final one in this summer series in Luke. Uh, Back in chapter 9, verse 51, we read that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And all the chapters that follow record the teaching Jesus gave as he was on this journey to Jerusalem. Now, this is the final bit of teaching before he enters the city, which is just after our passage. So if you look at 1928, where it's headed the triumphal entry, that's where he actually gets to Jerusalem. 
Now, as he approached Jerusalem, as he got closer, the sort of sense of anticipation was building, and some of his followers had got the wrong end of the stick. And they mistakenly thought that what was going to happen was this, that when they got to Jerusalem, Jesus was going to be crowned as king there and then and would start ruling over his kingdom. And they just hadn't got it that actually when he got to Jerusalem, first he was going to die on the cross, then he was going to be raised to life, then he was going to go to heaven, and then after a period of time, he was going to return at a later date to reign as king. And so in this final bit of teaching here, in this parable, Jesus uses a story to correct their misunderstanding about that. So verse 11, as they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. It's symbolic of gospel truth there. The nobleman stands for, who do you think the nobleman stands for? Jesus, good. Nobleman represents Jesus. He would soon depart for the far country. What do you think the far country represents? Heaven, good. Where he was going to be crowned as king. What do you think that represents? The what? Ascension and exaltation, yeah, the right hand of the Father, crowned as king, and then one day return. What do you, okay, that's the second coming. <laughs> now, this parable is about two things. Firstly, what are we to do as we wait for Christ to return? And then secondly, why are we to do it? And if you haven't got there already, inside your sheets, uh, you'll find those two points. So, firstly, what? What are we to do as we wait for Christ to return? So, verse 13. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten miners and said to them, engage in business until I come. So each of these uh, ten servants is given a miner. And a miner here is not a person who works underground digging out uh, coal. Uh, A miner or mina, I don't know how you pronounce it, uh, was a sum of money. And you'll see from the footnote there at the bottom, uh, footnote two says, a miner was about three months' wages for a labourer. So in the story Jesus tells, each of these servants is given the same sum of money and told to put it to work. So what does this sum of money represent? What's that standing for? Well, notice that each person, each servant, is given the same amount of money. You may be aware there's another parable Jesus tells in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 25, uh, 14 to 30, the parable of the talents, in which a different amount is given to each of the servants. And in that parable, the point seems to be that we're given different gifts, different abilities, different resources that we are to use to serve the Lord. But here in this parable in Luke, each servant is given the same amount. What does that stand for? Well, what is it that each believer, each servant of the Lord has been given, and the same given to each? We're not told here, there's no sort of interpretation given, but the kinds of things that would fit would be salvation, eternal life, the Holy Spirit, maybe the gospel, or perhaps God's grace. And personally, I think that's the one I'd go for. I think that probably fits best. God's grace is what each is given. So that's what they're given. What are we told to do with this? Verse 13 goes on. 
engage in business until I come. Engage in business until I come. Now, that doesn't mean that God's people, all of God's people, must literally go into business you know, as their job rather than medicine or law or teaching or IT or parenting or whatever. But rather what it's saying is that we are to get on with serving the Lord using the grace he has given us. We're to put it to work. We're to serve him. So this is the key business that we are to be engaged in as we wait for Christ to return. If we're Christians, we've been given God's grace that we might serve him. And so if you ask the question, what is the point of my life? The answer this gives is the point of your life is to serve the Lord. So that's what we're here for. In all the activities of our lives and all the areas of our lives, we are to put God's grace to work that's been freely given us and we are to serve him. This last Thursday night, um, I was speaking at something called a dialogue dinner. Have you come across a dialogue dinner before? Um, Basically, one of the midweek guys who works here in the Wharf, um, he invited a load of his colleagues to uh, have an evening with him at Boysdale Restaurant here in the Wharf, enjoy a great meal, and to hear about the Christian message. And seven of these colleagues accepted uh, who aren't Christian. And so I was invited along, lucky me, and we had this fabulous dinner together in this private function room in Boysdale. It was all paid for by this Christian guy who invited everyone. The plan was that during the starter, so I actually missed out on the starter, um, during the starter I had to give a 15-minute talk on the topic of judgment. Um, So talk about hospital pass, but that was the topic that he had chosen. And then we opened it up for questions. And the first question that someone came back with straight away was this. He said, what actually is the difference between you and me in how we live our lives? He said, you know, I'm sure we've both got a similar-ish ethical code and values, and we both try and treat people well and and so on. He said, what's the difference between you and me? Well, I wonder what you say. In reply, I tried to explain that the fundamental difference is that a Christian is someone who's under new management, that we're servants of the Lord now. We're living for him. We're seeking to serve him. And so there's a completely different center to life. There's a different authority that we're under. There's a different purpose to everything. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 says this, You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So there you have a right response to the gospel. Three things. Turn, serve, and wait. So becoming a Christian is a complete reorientation of life to serve the Lord as we wait for him to return. And so if you're someone who has received God's grace through Christ, is that your perspective on life? Do you see yourself, first and foremost, as a servant of the Lord? Do you see that as your primary identity? Do you see that as the purpose of your life now, that you're here to serve him, to live for him? Uh, Whether you're at home, at work, at play, at church, is this what you're seeking to do, to serve the Lord? When you get up in the morning, is this your attitude to the day ahead? Another day to serve the Lord. Lord, help me to serve you today. 
to use the grace that you've freely given me and to put it to work. Now what serving the Lord looks like in the different areas of our life, at home, at work, at church, in our personal lives, is something we're going to think about a little bit more from next week onwards as we begin a new series called All In For Christ. But I think even just keeping that goal and that purpose at the forefront of our minds, that in itself will make a big difference to how we live. So this friend in the wharf, you know, why did he put on this dialogue dinner? Uh, well, because he's got this kind of perspective at work. He's thinking, yeah, how can I engage in business here for the Lord? Now, it's not like he's doing this kind of thing every day of the week. Um, part of serving the Lord at work is just getting on with doing a good job, doing it for the Lord, being godly and so on. But he's also someone who's praying for gospel opportunities and he's being creative. And over the past nine years that he's worked on the wharf, uh, this is the third one of these dialogue dinners that we've done together. Contrast that sort of life with um, Tony Hancock, is a comedian from days gone by. In his last TV monologue, he performed a little piece uh, which went like this. He said, what have you achieved? What have you achieved? You lost your chance, me old son. You contributed absolutely nothing to this life. Waste of time you being here at all. No place for you in Westminster Abbey. The best you can expect is a jam jar and a black stone bearing the legend, he came and he went. And in between, nothing. Nobody will even notice you're not here. Well, a couple of years after that TV show, he committed suicide. Such despair, such futility, such a wasted life. By contrast, the Christian life has clear purpose, clear meaning. We're here to serve the king as we wait for him to return. Now, that is something that the enemies of the Lord refuse to do. So you see in verse 14, it says, But his citizens hated him. And they sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. If you're after a verse which describes, uh, sums up what sin is, that's a pretty good verse to go to, isn't it? We do not want this man to reign over us. That's the essence of sin. A bit of history for you. Herod the Great, you may have heard of. He was the king of Judea. When Herod the Great died, his son, a guy called Archelaus, succeeded him. And because Judea was a Roman province, um, he had to go to Rome to have his succession confirmed by the emperor Augustus. Now, this guy Archelaus was so hated by the Jews in Palestine that they sent this 50-strong delegation after him, this deputation, to protest, to protest against his appointment and to warn the emperor that there was going to be a revolt in Judea if this guy was made king. And as a result, Herod never received the title king. He was known instead only as an ethnarch. Now, all of this happened just after Jesus' birth. And the point is that this historical parallel with Jesus' story would have been something that the, the hearers at the time would have picked up pretty quickly. Especially given Jesus was telling this parable in Jericho, and that was where this guy Herod had built his royal palace. How they treated Herod, how also these citizens in the story treated the noblemen, is, the Bible says, how as a race we naturally treat God's king, Jesus. 
The essence of sin is not just treating other people wrongly, but treating the Lord wrongly. Rejecting his loving rule, refusing to serve him, saying, I do not want this man to reign over me. And so if you're not yet a Christian, there's a big challenge here, and it is simply this. Why don't you believe? Is it because there really isn't enough evidence to convince you, or is it rather that you don't want to change? You don't want to give up being your own boss and living as you see fit. Jesus is uh, pointing out here that our fundamental problem is not intellectual, but it is moral. We do not want Jesus to rule over us. In our pride, we want to be boss. We want to wear the crown. We want to make up the rules. We want to call the shots. We don't want this change of management in our lives. I don't want this man to reign over me. But actually, self-rule is not as great as we might like to think. Uh, Serving the Lord is the best way to live. It's what we were made for. It's where we find our true purpose, our freedom, our identity, and our meaning. And all of that is certainly one big incentive for going his way. But the rest of the story Jesus tells gives another big incentive for going his way. And it's all to do with what will happen when the king returns. So we turn secondly from the what to the why. Why bother serving the Lord rather than just serving ourselves? And if we are serving him, you know, why bother really going for it rather than sort of setting cruise control and just coasting along? Look at what happens in verse 15. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. That is telling us that as servants of the Lord, we will be called to account by the Lord when he returns. He'll want to know what we've done in this life with the grace that he's freely given us. Paul says in Romans, 10, uh, Romans 14, verse 10, he says we will all stand before the judgment seat of God and each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, just that in itself is a pretty big incentive, isn't it, to be faithful in serving Christ now. All of us will be called to account, but there's even more. Those servants who have been faithful will be rewarded. So verse 16, the first came before him saying, Lord, your miner has made ten miners more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. The second came saying, Lord, your miner has made five miners. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Now, Jesus doesn't run through all ten servants in the story. He just takes two of them as examples. Both of them have been faithful servants. Both of them are put to work what was entrusted to them, and they both made a profit. Both have been active in the king's service, and both of them are rewarded and commended. The reward in the story, you'll notice, is to share the king's rule, ruling over cities. But notice this. Notice that the reward is different in each case. And the reward is in proportion to their faithfulness in serving in this life. The first made ten miners, he gets given ten cities to rule over, the second made five, and so he gets five cities to rule over in the age to come. It's proportionate. Sometimes the Bible speaks about salvation itself as being God's reward, as in the reward he gives us when Christ returns. 
Um, so, for example, Isaiah 62, verse 11 says this. Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, the Lord's reward is with him and his recompense before him. So in that verse, salvation itself is described as the reward. But here in Luke, there are clearly different rewards in addition to salvation, uh, if you like, a, a kind of bonus for faithful service. Now, this isn't the only passage which uh, talks about this. Our first reading, 1 Corinthians 3, uh, said this at the end of that reading, verse 12. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. So that last bit there is speaking about someone who is saved, but misses out on the reward and it says, suffers loss as a result. Now, this sort of thing is quite hard for us to get our minds around, isn't it? Because we think, well, you know, if when Christ returns, if somebody gets a reward and I don't get a reward, um, I'm going to be pretty envious, I'm going to be disappointed. Or um, if someone else gets a bigger reward than me, I'm going to be pretty hacked off about that. So we don't know exactly how it's going to pan out. Suffice to say that all God's people will be perfectly happy in heaven. Now, there's not going to be envy and disappointment and so on in heaven. But rewards clearly will vary according to our faithfulness now. And these rewards seem to be about different capacities and responsibilities in the age to come. One uh, theologian from centuries past, a guy called Jonathan Edwards, wrote the following. He said... Every vessel that is cast into this ocean of happiness is full, though there are some vessels far larger than others. And he says there shall be no such thing as envy in heaven, but perfect love shall reign throughout the whole society. Now, the point is this, that the prospect of being called to account by the king and the prospect of being rewarded is intended to motivate us in our service of Christ now. Knowing that everything we do for him counts. It all matters. The Lord sees it. Our prayer behind closed doors. Our giving that nobody else knows about. Our pursuit of godliness and the cost of that in our lives. Our hard work. Our faithful service. He sees. And he will reward us accordingly when he returns. There's a lovely verse in Matthew 10, 42, where Jesus says, Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, he will by no means lose his reward. Now, this is not the only motivation in the Bible for faithful service. Uh, We're to serve the Lord faithfully because of his grace to us. We're to do it because we love him. We're to do it because he's the king, and so on. But this is certainly one of them that we are also to do it because of reward. And so if, at the moment, if you're serving away, and maybe you're feeling a little bit frustrated, that uh, you feel, I'm doing a lot more than other people here, they seem to be on cruise control, rather than getting frustrated, they're saying, don't worry about it, you'll get your reward, keep going. And if this parable convicts you that maybe you have been on cruise control, and you've just been a bit half-hearted and so on, I guess this is saying, well, why not up your game? Because it'll be worth it. But the final bit of the story is a warning, and it is a warning to two other types of people. And the first is the unfaithful servant. 
We meet him in verses 20 to 26, this third servant who in verse 20 came saying, Lord, here here is your mina which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. He's done nothing with what he's been given. All he's done is he's wrapped it up in a handkerchief and put it in his drawer. He hasn't even put it in the bank to get some interest to give to the king. He comes out with some lame excuse that he was afraid that the king was a harsh man. Whereas the evidence was that the nobleman was actually very generous, very kind. He gave each servant a sum of money and then he gave such generous rewards on his return. Well, in verse 22, the king condemns him. He says, I will condemn you, you wicked servant. And the money he had is taken away from him and it's given to the one who is ten. And the principle there in, in verse 26 is, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is clearly a warning to the person who professes Christian faith, but does nothing with it. The person who receives God's grace, but does so in vain. If you, uh, if you profess to be a Christian, but you're basically on the sun deck of the cruise ship, and you're topping up your tan, and you're waving your ticket to heaven... Uh, This is saying that you may be in for a big shock. You'll find that when Christ returns, that you're not actually saved. Because salvation is for servants. Salvation is for servants. We're saved to serve. We're saved to live life for the King. And so it's not enough to have prayed some prayer of commitment some years ago, some point in the past. It's not enough just to say, well, you know, I believe Jesus died for my sins. I'm forgiven. See you in heaven. It's not enough just to attend church. It's not enough to be a servant only in name. If we've received God's free grace, we need to get to work. We need to engage in business. We need to get serving the king and living for him. The other type of person who's warned here is the enemy of Christ. So this person who's been saying, I don't want this man to reign over me. When the king returns, he'll be shown no mercy Verse 27 says, As for these enemies of mine who didn't want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. It's pretty sobering, isn't it? If you're such a person, there is a a call here to change now before it's too late, to submit to the king before he returns, and to start living for him. Well, as we close, I wonder what you find uh, the hardest bit in this teaching that Jesus has given in this parable. Isn't the hardest bit actually the phrase that begins verse 15? When he returned. When he returned. You see, the incentive here for serving Christ now is what will happen when Christ returns. And so it's what's called delayed gratification as opposed to instant gratification. And we find that hard, don't we? We find that really, really hard. You'll be familiar, I'm sure, with the famous uh, marshmallow experiment uh, that was conducted at Stanford University back in the 60s and early 70s. Um, They did this uh, this experiment with children uh, where they offered children a choice. So they sat a child in a room and they put in front of the child on a plate a marshmallow. And they said to each child, you've got a choice. You can have that marshmallow now, right away, or if you wait... 
I'm going to leave the room and I'm going to come back in you know, a while later. When I come back, if you haven't touched it, you haven't eaten it, you can have two marshmallows. And, I mean, you can see on YouTube some clips of kids who've been uh, filmed doing this and just the agony of these kids as they're staring at this one marshmallow and thinking, should I have one now or can I possibly wait and get the two? It's not just children, though, is it? You find it hard to wait. We do as grown-ups as well. In our culture, we are increasingly conditioned to expect instant gratification. We want everything now. And so this past week, like many of you, I'm sure, we took out Amazon Prime because we don't want to wait. We want delivery and we want it the next day. Thank you very much. And soon it'll be Prime Air drones, won't it, sort of hovering over your flats and delivering your order through your window within 30 minutes. Same with social media, isn't it? We, we post something on social media. We expect immediate response with likes, with shares, with comments straight away. Jesus is saying here, Live your life now for me, not because of benefits you're going to get right now, though there are clearly some, but he's saying here, live your life now for me because of what will happen when I return. Now that is a very, very different kind of perspective, isn't it? But it's the key one because the consequences are eternal. This day is coming, isn't it, when we'll be called to account by the king. It's going to come for each one of us when either when Christ returns or when we die, whichever comes first. And either of those two events could happen any day. Christ could return tomorrow, you could go under a bus next week. And even if you have another 30, 40 years, whatever, it's going to go like that. It's going to go really quickly. Well, where do you see yourself in the story at the moment? Who would you identify most closely with at the moment? Are you one of the faithful servants in the parable? Well, if so, be encouraged, keep going in serving the king. When he returns, you will be rewarded. And nothing that you have done for him is going to be lost or forgotten. So do so, and do so more and more. Or do you see yourself, perhaps, instead in the unfaithful servant? Have you been thinking, well, it really doesn't matter how I live. You know, I've got my ticket to heaven. I'll leave the hard work to the keenies. They can make the sacrifices. Be warned that you cannot fool God. Or are you even aware that you've been rejecting Jesus and his rule? Well, if so, be warned. The judgment is coming and take action before it's too late.